is about more than just research. It's about community, too. Right? See you in the community. What's going on this weekend? The last time we met, we talked to Well, last time I talked to the people from downtown. What was the last movie you went to? Miguel, what's new? Miguel, what's new in the community? Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed? First of all, for the people who contact us on Twitter. About a certain research. Welcome to another episode of the Community Board Podcast with your host Miguel Valdez and today we have here Dr. Eri Mate. Did I say it right, doctor? Yes, you said it right. Um, doctor, where are you from? I like your accent. I'm originally from Ghana, West Africa. And how long have you been here in the Midwest? Uh, in the Midwest, this is my 14th year, going into my 15th. Okay, so how's the winter have treated you? Well, I don't think anybody gets used to the Minnesota winter, but um, when you go out there and you gauge with the sporting activities that you can do in the winter, you, you, the winter gets a little shorter. So what, what is some of your favorite physical activity or, or what do you do for recreation during the winter? Just even um, uh, ice shoeing, just going out there and walking out in the snow. Oh, yeah? Um cross-country skiing. I've tried that a couple of times. So, Ghana, mm -hmm. I'm here looking at the map. Right. Uh, it's, it's, in really a, it's in the western, west of, uh, of, of, of Africa. Okay, so very tropical. Very, very right tropical. Right close to the Ecuador. Yes. Right. Okay. So, how many years again? 17? 14? In the Midwest? Yes. 14. Okay. So, You presented a uh, few days ago at Mayo Clinic at Grand Rounds in a topic related to pharmacogenomics and individualized medicine. Right. But also when they presented to you, they mentioned about your, you have a hobby for cycling? I do have a hobby for, for cycling. Do you do, do you bike during the winter? I don't. Oh, okay. I so. don't. <laughs> <laughs> I see a couple of people who do it in the winter. I bike until it gets to about... 50 degrees, and then... And do you do, like, a road riding? I do road biking. Um, I went out yesterday, and I rode for about an hour and a half. Okay. How many miles is that? Um, usually, I can do about 15 to 20 miles during that time period. Okay. And do you do it by yourself, or you go in a group? I, I enjoy going by myself. That way, I don't have to bike too fast if I don't want to. And okay. I can, and they'll have to wait for you. And I have to wait for me. That's correct. So, Dr. What is, uh, how do you get into pharmacogenomics? And first of all, you're a... a I'm, a I'm a pharmacist. Pharmacist, right. okay. And for somebody who's listening and they want to get into pharmacogenomics, right. so the first step is to become a pharmacist. Is that right? Or how, what is the trail? I think most healthcare professionals can engage or be part of the pharmacogenomic process. Okay. Being a nurse or a physician, or a nurse practitioner, or anybody in the healthcare field who takes care of patients, I think should familiarize themselves with what pharmacogenomics is all about. Now, with your question of how do you get yourself engaged in, in pharmacogenomics, I think education is key. So going through um, a pharmacy program and having a pharmacy degree is the first step. If you really want to understand how medications work on the human body. And that is what pharmacists specialize to do. Mm -hmm. Then the next step is 
I think practicing for a while to understand how various populations um, do on specific medications. So how do certain medications work on certain populations? Understanding how populations react to certain medications. And then the next step is taking some courses to explore and strengthen your pharmacogenomic concepts and how to apply that in clinic. So pharmacogenomics, it looks more into the individual versus a general public? So, so if, you, if, if I was to give you a definition of pharmacogenomics, it has to do with how um, pharmacogenes or genes that can predict how certain medications will either be effective or not be effective or cause side effects for patients, how these genes can predict how these medications will either be effective or not be effective. Now, when you think about the name, it has two components, right? Pharmaco and then genes. So it's the genes predicting potential how certain medications will either be effective or not be effective for you, or how you will tolerate certain medications. And based on that information, we can predict what doses of medications to initiate or why we need to decrease certain doses or why we need to avoid certain medications that can harm you. So how long was ago mm -hmm. that the genome was discovered? Ah, the human genome. The human genome. I want to say 2003, 2004, okay. but I'm not very sure about that. Yeah, I think so it was around, around that time. Right. So since that time, that's how pharmacogenomics has been looking more into it. There, there, there was, um, and I want to say maybe 2008... 2009, um, President, back then President Obama, um, started what we'll call the Precision Medicine Initiative, Okay. whereby when we talk about precision medicine, we're looking at um, basically individualized care of patients. How can patient-specific genes be used to tailor the care that patients um, need in terms of medications and other therapies to improve certain conditions that the patients have. So based on all of that, and now pharmacogenomics has been going on for many years in the lab, right? Um, I mean, it's been going on since the early 19th centuries or maybe even the early 18th century, the late 18th centuries, where patients will, a group of people take certain chemicals and react differently compared to other populations. And some of that could be explained by their genetic makeup. But when we t think about the science today um, and, the, and the revolution that is going on in the world of pharmacogenomics, I think it all started with that initiative by um, the past president, mm -hmm. um, Obama, and how most clinicians and other labs have decided to um, move the, the, the science from the lab to the bedside and how to utilize that information in, to improve the care that patients really need. So that's when the term individualized medicine? Yeah, so, so, so it's evolved. It used to be precision medicine, and then individualizing the care that patients need came that individualized medicine. Okay. So th during your presentation, mm -hmm. um, you use a really... Uh, a very nice way to present it. Right. Because you did it like in a jeopardy. Right. And you invite um, mm -hmm. four panelists or, right. or participants. Yes. Let's put it that way. Yes. 
were they from different fields or they were all from the same field? So the 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 providers or the doctors mm -hmm. who took part in the Jeopardy style pharmacogenomics that was held on Wednesday came from different backgrounds. Um, again, they were all clinicians. One was a doctor who takes care of um, gastrointestinal issues, okay. right? Usually for 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 pediatrics, so children. Got it. Okay. Um, the other one had an interest in polypharmacy, meaning patients who are on multiple medications, um, and the elderly. Mm -hmm. Another one was interested in polypharmacy, but for fibromyalgia patients, to see if the medications that fibromyalgia patients were taking, if pharmacogenomics can help explain why some of them do not tolerate those medications. So they came from various backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And... They've been very interested in utilizing pharmacogenomics to help their patient populations. So we've done a couple of pilots in these patient populations. I mean, we don't have any data to report yet. It's still ongoing. Mm -hmm. We'll see what we come up with. So at this point um, in the medical field, mm -hmm. can a patient request um, to have your pharmacogenomic profile when you in case that you've been seen by a doctor? and you The answer to that is yes. Um, and I put this in two different categories, what we say is something like um, preemptive or diagnostic. So diagnostic pharmacogenomic testing, meaning a patient could be taking multiple medications, they, they have an adverse drug reaction or so side effect to the medications, and they come to the hospital, and then and, and, and the clinician or the, the doctor or the pharmacist or nurse will say, we do have pharmacogenomic testing as part of other tests that we offer. That patient can have that pharmacogenomic testing done to see if pharmacogenomics can explain why the patient is not doing well on those medications. Now, pharmacogenomics will not explain every adverse drug reaction or side effects that patients are having on all medications. It can only be utilized for medications that have a drug-gene interaction, meaning is the drug metabolized by that gene? Does the medication have an association with that gene? Then we can use pharmacogenomics. The other group of patients is something that I call preemptive, meaning I want to know what my pharmacogenomic data is or results are before a drug is prescribed for me. Some patients want to do that. So they, can, they are not taking any medications, but they want to know if tomorrow I'm going to take a drug, can the pharmacogenomics help um, predict which medications I should avoid or which medications I should take? Right? So the, the short answer is yes. Okay. Pharmacogenomic testing is available for patients to, um, to have. Um, but you, you can categorize it in these two populations, the diagnostic or the preemptive um, group. And since you've been in this field, have you seen the progress on people's uh, well-being once they, they take this test and they start taking a new drug or, or they're having taken some medicine and then they're adding a new one and they might have in the past a reaction versus now having that as a uh, background to if, prevent some... If, if, Pharmacogenomics is not a magic bullet. <laughs> okay. It's, it is, it, it's, it's a tool that can be utilized to help answer or sometimes to help um, put at ease 
the patient concerns about medications. And let me explain that. So let's say a patient takes all kinds of medications and for each drug they take, they have a reaction to it. Pharmacogenomics could be used to let the patient know that, you know what, you have normal genes. And so the reaction that you're having cannot be explained by your genes. It could be something else, right? And so then the doctor can then say, well, now that we know that it is not your genes, it's not the way you metabolize these medications that is causing the adverse drug reactions, maybe we should try different ways of giving you the medication. Could it be the environment where could they be, live? It or? could be the environment. It could be, um, you know, medications have what we call the active drug itself and then an inactive drug, meaning the fillers that are used to fill the capsules or tablets to bulk them so patients can take. Some patients may have a reaction um, or intolerance to some of the fillers. Does the stress levels are considered when somebody's taking medicine too? Um, do you see that? Or? No, no. So pharmacogenomics will not determine somebody's stress level or something. No, that will not. Pharmacogenomics will not help you with that. No, no, but once we define that somebody, mm -hmm. their, your, your genes are um, normal. Right. Or, would that doctor consider other, like the environment or is... Right, it's so they, they can consider, is there any allergens that the patient or things in the environment that the patient reacts to? Are there um, any, any chemicals in the tablet itself, right, the fillers that I just explained, mm -hmm. that the patient could be reacting to? Okay. Doctor, where, um, if somebody is listening and would like to get involved in um, study or, or to learn more about... Uh, pharmacogenomics, how can they get involved? So for, for general for knowledge, the public. For, the, for the general population, um, one of the things that there, there are a ton of resources there, and I can, you know, rattle off a bunch of... We um, can put it on the link in on, the information. On, right. So you can go to the CPIC, which is the Clinical Pharmacogenomic Implementation Consortium. That would give you some articles about um, the guidelines that have been published. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the Food and Drug Administration has a link on pharmacogenomics. NIH has a link on pharmacogenomics. But NIH is the National Institute of Health. Of Health, okay. right. Now, once you read this information, it's critical that you look at other variables when you're predicting or assessing the pharmacogenomic results. Right. So if a patient has a kidney problem or a liver problem, you cannot avoid that and say the patient is accumulating a drug because of pharmacogenomics, right? So we have to look at all the other variables when we are assessing the utility of pharmacogenomics. Okay. So, so I think the point I'm trying to make here is that when you read on the subject of pharmacogenomics, don't individualize just that information and say, this is why everything else is not working, which is not how we practice medicine. We have to look at the whole picture to improve the care that we give patients. Okay. And what is your role that you play? My role is um, at Mayo Clinic, one of the things that I do is help with the implementation of pharmacogenomics, working with our Center for Individualized Medicine, working with our pharmacy team, um, under the leadership of our pharmacy program to implement pharmacogenomics at Mayo Clinic. And, and how do we do that? Through education, 
through seminars, through um, the grand rounds that you saw, working on pilots to make it a little bit comfortable for clinicians to be engaged, um, being available to answer questions. To use the resources yes. you guys have? Yes. Okay. And for a pharmacist, how can they get engaged? So at Mayo Clinic, we we have a program here um, where we're doing a study called the um, Right Protocol. And I think I mentioned that in my presentation on Wednesday, where Mayo Clinic is performing pharmacogenomic testing on 10,000 patients. And the pharmacists here at Mayo are all helping with the results that are coming back into the medical record. So they're reviewing, ensuring that if there is any major information that clinicians need to know, the clinicians are sent a message, and pharmacists are involved in that. And by doing that, we're training our pharmacists. So um, when a patient goes and gets their right, there's gonna prescription? Right, there's going to be an information in the medical record alerting the physician that the patient has had the results. And if if there's a way that we have a system in place that if the patient could encounter harm from a medication, we have a system in place that will alert the physician so that the physician could potentially avoid or be aware to monitor the patient if that medication is to be used. Okay. Uh, doctor, mm-hmm. thank you for sharing with us. In your field of this and uh, this career, mm-hmm. What a uh, big, I mean, you're seeing since 2003 that we're thinking about the right. uh, completion of the genome, mm-hmm. of the human genome. Right. What is the biggest change that you're seeing or through your whole car- career? With the pharmacogenomics itself? Yeah. Um, I think, and I, and I have a strong feeling that pharmacogenomics is going to be part of the normal labs that people walk into every clinic and have, meaning less than five to ten years from today, people are going to be going into their healthcare providers having their pharmacogenomic information in their hands, which would then decrease, you know, adverse drug reactions are a major concern and a burden on the healthcare system in America. So if pharmacogenomics can help decrease that and improve the care that patients have or the experience that patients have with their medications, I think that will be a huge win for all of us. Doctor, thank you so much for agreeing to be part of this podcast. Also, uh, during the, when they present, when they presented to you, they mentioned that you also volunteer at the local Salvation Army. Right. What, what, how do you volunteer there? What do you do? So I used to volunteer oh, there. Oh, you used to volunteer. I used to volunteer there. So, um, Can you paint the picture? What does the Salvation Army Clinic does here in Rochester for individuals who are, are so, not familiar? So, so the Salvation Army, back in the day when I used to volunteer there, what we used to do was for underserved patients, patients who could not afford their medications, or patients who had um, specific diagnosis but could not find... Um, healthcare uh, accessibility. They could come to the Salvation Army, I think it was on Tuesdays or Thursdays, there were specific Mm -hmm. clinic days, where patients could go there, um, see a doctor who would then assess them for their condition. 
prescribe a drug. They could then bring it to the pharmacy, which was where I was working back then, or mm-hmm. volunteering my services. So the Salvation had their own? They had their own pharmacy. Oh, great. And we would then provide uh, the medications to these patients at no cost, or at very minimal cost, so that patients could then have the medications to manage their conditions like hypertension, diabetes, and other conditions that patients had back in the day. And I found, uh, my experience being there, I found it really helpful This a lot of the pharmacies kind of explain, uh, right. again, how to take those Right, so, those so one, medications. Of the, one of the, the things that pharmacists do is, before we, we, we give you a medication to take, we'll tell you the directions that are important, right? How to take the medication, when to take the medication. Do you need to take it with food? Should you take it on an empty stomach? No driving. No driving. Should you avoid taking the medication with, say, calcium supplements so that the drug is well absorbed? Um, should you watch out for um, other medications that you're taking that could cause a drug-drug interaction? So th- all those things are done there at the Salvation Army, which you know pharmacies provide across the board for all patients. So a little change of mm-hmm. subject mm-hmm. here. For your perspective, what do you think about the uh, opioid epidemics? It's here in Olmsted County, mm-hmm. through the... Uh, community health needs assessment. Uh, there has been also suggested by the community there is also they seen mm-hmm. reflects the the rest of the country with uh, having problems. On your perspective, what do you think? Of? So the opioid crisis, is, I think, is a huge crisis that is affecting you know multiple families across the United States, and I don't think Olmsted County um, is immune to that. Now, I think one of the things that Mayo is doing is and ensuring that all providers are aware of this issue and ensuring that um, patients who really need opioids are getting them and those who do not need it get other medications that can be used to manage pain, right? Um, we, we in the healthcare world want to ensure that if a patient has chronic pain, we use other methods or non-pharmacological methods to manage that pain, if available. If a patient has what we call an acute pain, um, maybe we can start with non-opioids before we get to the opioids. Right? Now, since we're on the, on the, on the topic of pharmacogenomics, um, and you've introduced mm-hmm. the topic of opioids, some of the opioids, like tramadol and codeine, are metabolized by gene called CYP2D6, right? If a patient is either a poor metabolizer, meaning they don't have the ability to either activate tramadol or codeine, those medications will not work for that patient to manage their pain. So again, knowing that pharmacogenomic results or information before prescribing that drug will be critical for that patient to say, this drug will not even work for you. So what happens, for example, with those individuals? They keep having the pain, yeah, they will and have do they the, have the other effects? They will have the pain, but they will take the drug, but the pain will not be resolved because they are poor metabolizers and they cannot activate the drug to the form that will help decrease the pain. Okay. For patients who are, let's say, ultra-rapid, meaning they have an increased activity of the gene, they will have a high concentration of the active drugs for this tramadol and codeine that I'm talking about. And they can have side effects, right? Respiratory depression, um, 
we know constipation is a big issue with mm-hmm. most of these opioids. And so pharmacogenomics could play a role here, right? In, 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 a, in a small yeah. in a small piece is if we know your results, maybe we can say we don't need to give you this drug. Or if we're going to give it to you, we need to give you a lower dose. Um, but so there are two concepts here. Patients who um, do not need opioids should try non-pharmacological ways. Patients who need opioids may need um, a shorter duration, but you want to start with non-opioid treatment first, right, moving forward to prevent or help manage this epidemic that we are having. And and I know there's been a lot of talk on um, about the use of um, uh, the medication that I'm forgetting here, naloxone, which is used to prevent people who have opioid overdose. Um, and I think we need to create more awareness about how to use that to decrease um, the mortality that, that we're seeing with the crisis. Doctor, anything else that would you like to share? Also, well, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, I also remember that you shared with us a slide where it shows the 80% of the population so, shares a, a gene. So, so I think I talked about, during the presentation, I talked about a gene called the cytochrome or CYP2D6, right? That gene, though, when we did the first right study, we realized that 60% of the 1,013 patients who were in the first um, study were not normal metabolizers for that gene. Mm-hmm. Now, why is that gene important? Is that 25% of the medications that are sold in the United States Across market, the, yeah. right? are metabolized by that gene. So knowing what your CYP2D6 is could help determine should it be on a high dose, should it be on a low dose, should you even avoid a specific medication. It's critical to know if if, if that is of concern to a patient or to a clinician. Um, so that was the point that I was trying to make there is that that gene is involved in the metabolism of a lot of medications. I mean, 25% is, is, is large. And knowing what your phenotype or what status you are with respect to that gene is important. And can you, when a, a newborn mm-hmm. uh, is born with a condition, you guys run this test too? The so those are two different things. So we have genetic conditions. Okay. There are, there are um, specific, they'll, they'll look at the patient's um, genome to predict or to assess if the patient has certain um, deletions or changes to, to determine if they will have certain conditions. Or maybe they have a condition and they can do a genetic test, which is a little different from the pharmacogenomic test which we use to predict medications. Okay. Doctor, anything else that would you like to share with the public here, with our friends on the Community Board podcast? Um, I think one thing that I would like everybody to know is that pharmacogenomics is available. If you're interested in knowing more about pharmacogenomics, we've talked about a number of links um, that you can access to learn more about pharmacogenomics. But if you have your pharmacogenomic tests, do not make any changes to your medications until you talk to a healthcare provider because it is quite complex. And what you may see on the report needs to be assessed, analyzed by a clinician before you make any changes to your medications. 
And do you guys use um, shared decision tools? No, no, not at this point. No, okay. Right. Well, doctor, thank you so much for all the work that you do for your presentation. We have here a couple of guests in the studio, two students. You guys have any questions for Dr. Eric? No? No. You guys good? Okay, well, I want to invite everybody to follow us on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter under Community Board. Also on Facebook under under Community Board. Share this episode and the other episodes. On iTunes, you can find us on the Community Board Podcast. On SoundCloud, also on Community Board Podcast. Make sure you su subscribe and you get alert once we upload a new episode. Doctor, let's go for a bike ride. Thank you. All right, let's go. What's going on this weekend? The last time we met, we talked to this. Well, last time I talked to the people from downtown. What was the last movie you went to? Miguel, what's new? Miguel, what's new in the community? Have you gotten any feedback about the Twitter feed? First of all, for the people who contact us on Twitter. About a certain research. Can you tell me more? Well, depends who you talk if you talk to the people from the board. Why did the yogurt go to the art museum? Did you see in the news? To get more culture. <laughs>